Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's great to have you with us today on the Beeson Podcast. We're going to listen to a sermon today by one of our own colleagues, Dr. Frank Thielman, who has been at Beeson almost from the very beginning, a wonderful teacher of Greek and New Testament, a world-renowned scholar, and as we'll see today, also quite a preacher. He's going to bring a message from Mark 5, From Fear to Faith. What are we going to hear, Dr. Smith? This is an excellent expositional message based upon four narratives. He admits that he's not an expert when it comes to categorizing fear, defining fear, and yet, he says, the four areas of fear, and incidentally, he uses alliteration, disaster, natural disaster, human depravity, debilitating disease, and then the the greatest death. Um, And it's interesting how he takes those four categories and he assigns each category to the four stories from Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to Mark chapter 5, verse 43, uh, and ties those together. These are four categories in which all of us can identify with. That's one of the strengths of the sermon, Dean George, and that is identity. As James A. Sanders would say, biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. We see ourselves and each of those persons moving from faith I mean, from fear to faith. And so each beast, and he, he is very intentional about, since he's preaching to the audience of Beast Divinity School students, to uh, provide illustrative places for them to identify uh, with. And concludes the sermon in a powerful way after talking about resurrection, about faith, um, about the love of God in a G.K. Chesterton um, illustration in a fictional book, pointing to the fact that God's love is greater than anything that we can ever imagine or define. Well, Dr. Frank Thielman, it is always a pleasure to listen to him because he's so close to the text. He's moving from the text into our lives, into Mm -hmm. reality. I want you also to listen to this sermon of how he begins. He begins with a prayer, a prayer for illumination, that God would come and open our hearts and minds to what he has revealed of himself in the words of Holy Scripture. That's something that's very uh, endemic to the Reformed tradition and other traditions, and he does it so beautifully. I would commend it to all of our listeners in your own preaching and teaching to always begin with a prayer like Dr. Thielman uses here. Let's go to the chapel of Beeson Divinity School and hear a great sermon by Dr. Frank Thielman, From Fear to Faith. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning to study God's Word together. Let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God to prepare our hearts and enlighten our eyes. Gracious Heavenly Father, apart from the presence of your Holy Spirit here with us this morning, the same Holy Spirit who inspired your infallible word, our study of it would be in vain. So we humbly pray that you might open our minds, that you might open our hearts, make us willing to obey your word. Take the words of my mouth, In the meditations of all of our hearts, make them acceptable in thy sight, 
O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm no expert, but I would guess you could divide human fears into four broad categories. One would be the fear of natural disaster, big weather events like we're used to here in Alabama, tornadoes, hurricanes, like Hurricane Isabel, whose force we were mercifully pretty much spared here in Alabama, but which tackled the southeastern coast of the United States a couple of months ago and did about $6 billion worth of damage. We could predict it. We had satellite pictures of it. We could warn people that it was coming and tell them to seek higher ground. We could ask them to tack plywood on their windows and put duct tape on their doors. But in the end, we could not prevent Hurricane Isabel from coming. It was going to come, and we knew it full well. And that's why a storm like that inspires such great fear in us. With the best of our human ingenuity, we simply can't control it. It's beyond us. Another great human fear that we have is simply the fear of human evil and depravity. It's been with us since Adam's fall, since Cain killed Abel. It's unpredictable. We don't like to talk about it and think about it, but it greets us on the news screen every night on TV. We find it on our lawns on Saturday morning and in the paper when we would rather rest. We read of atrocities. And if we're truthful with ourselves, we fear something like that happening to us. Our best efforts, our strongest military, our best police force, our transportation safety authority can't in the end prevent human depravity from taking its unpredictable, violent, horrible, greedy toll on us. And so we fear it. Another fear I think that each of us has is the fear of debilitating disease. If we think about it, we've made huge medical advances. We have CAT scans and MRIs. We have wonderful therapies, and doctors have worked hard to release us from suffering. But in the end, each of us can be afflicted with cancer. Each of us could have a stroke that would debilitate us and affect our minds or our ability to walk. We could be struck with spinal meningitis or Parkinson's disease. And if we're truthful, we fear these things. Our best ingenuity has not overcome them. And then who among us, even Christians, if we're truly honest with ourselves, doesn't fear that greatest dread event that, unless the Lord comes, will happen to each of us, death, will cross Jordan's icy waters one day. Yes, we can set it aside and try to deny it. We can certainly delay it. We live a lot longer now than people used to. But in the end, unless the Lord tarries, death will strike us all. Four great human fears. Our response to these fears, because they are so great and because we can't control them, and they, they are beyond even our vast human ingenuity, our response to these fears, even for the irreligious among us, is often to turn to God in the midst of them. 
couple of months ago when Hurricane Isabel was on its way. Did you listen carefully to the news reports, secular news reports, or read the paper and notice how often people talked about God? People said they were praying that the hurricane wouldn't do damage. They were asking the Lord to help them. They were asking God to spare them. I remember the next day when the hurricane had, in fact, done a lot of damage, reading in the paper that one person had said God had a lot to answer for. People were thinking about God. Why? Even irreligious people, people that never darkened the door of a church, were thinking about God because their fear of what might happen in these unpredictable circumstances caused them to turn to something beyond them, something that they hoped could help them. But what so often happens when we turn to God is that other deeper fears strike our soul. The fear that although God is able to help us, we know he can, but that he won't. We know that God perhaps is all-powerful. We we think in moments like that that he's created each one of us and he's created the world. But we suspect that there's some great scheme he's got in mind and that we don't fit into it and he, he won't help us at our point of need. If we're honest with ourselves, that's often what we think, even though we're Christians and claim to be followers of Jesus. We often also have another fear when we're faced with overwhelming force set against us. And that is that although God, we, we especially are prone to this as Christians, although God is on our side and we know he loves us, that he can't help us. This problem is beyond him. Mark understood these fears. He understood them. Jesus understood them. And Mark, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, collected in his gospel at the end of Mark chapter 4 and all through chapter 5, four miracles of Jesus corresponding to each of these four great fears. And Mark's purpose in recording these miracles is to explode the pagan idea of God that he is either not willing or not able to help us in our time of need. Let's look briefly at these four miracles. We only read two of them in the passage a moment ago. The other two, though, are very familiar to you. You probably learned about Jesus calming the storm on the sea like I did at your mother's knee. It's a very familiar story. Jesus and his disciples are out on the Lake of Galilee, it's really a lake, it's only 13 miles north and south and seven miles across is at its broadest place. But these are fishermen, they fish, they catch fish on this lake, fish that were a delicacy all over the Roman world, and they could make a good living at it. They knew this lake well, and they knew that it was prone to having storms violently blow up on it because it's 695 feet below sea level, and it sits between two ranges of hills that are sometimes very sharp escarpments. And because of that, the weather can be quite sudden and quite violent 
on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples with Jesus in the boat found themselves in the midst of one of these violent storms on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, however, is asleep on a cushion in the stern when the storm storm blows up. The disciples, with waves pouring in over the sides of the boat and the, the boat about to sink, become aggravated at Jesus, and they say, Jesus, get up and start bailing. We are about to die, and you don't realize the danger that we are in. To their absolute astonishment, Jesus stands up, and he says to the wind, be quiet, to the waves, be calm. And there was a great calm, and the disciples were spared I want you to look at their reaction. You know, at first we think they ought to be having a party, shouldn't they? They've just been spared. Their lives have been spared. But if you've got your Bibles open there, look at their reaction in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They get across the sea, and they come to the other side, the shore. It's the region of the Decapolis. This is a Gentile region, and Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat, and they immediately encounter a man who is himself a human storm. He is a man who is crazed with depravity. We're not told why, but he's possessed by a legion of demons, and if we think about demon possession in the scriptures, those who are possessed by demons are typically those who have opened themselves up to evil, to the influences perhaps of idols in this case, which Paul tells us are, uh, have demons around them. And so this man is an example of human depravity. He's been possessed by a legion of demons And he rages like a storm through the tombs and through the region, the village of Gadara. And he terrorizes and horrifies the population. He's anything but what a human being should be. He cuts himself with stones and he runs wild and naked through the tombs. And everyone is afraid of this man, so afraid that they've wrestled him to the ground and gotten shackles on his feet and chains on his wrists. But the demons are more powerful, and they're able to break the shackles and do away with the chains, and there's nothing they can do about him. And he is the first person who greets Jesus and the disciples on the shore. You know the rest of the story. Jesus casts the demons out. They go into a herd of pigs. The pigs plunge over the cliff, and they're drowned in the sea. I love this verse in chapter 5, 15. When the villagers came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. God can change people. Now, the villagers had been terrified of this man. He had wreaked havoc in Gadara. He had run among the tombs terrifying people. They were so afraid of him that they had chained him. Here he sits, clothed and in his right mind. You would think they would have a party. Look at the 
listen to verse 15 at their response. And they were afraid. Did we read that right? Is there a textual variant here? And and they were afraid. You know, the same thing happens in in the case of the sick woman about whom Josh read so well a moment ago. She's been sick for 12 long years. She's spent her income on physician after physician. Have you ever known anyone of whom verse 26 were true? She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. There was little hope for this woman. Moreover, she had a terrible disease. It was not only physically terrible because it was a constant flow of blood. Can you imagine how anemic this made her and how weak she was all the time? But perhaps even worse than that, it rendered her perpetually unclean. So she was a terribly inconvenient person to be around. Anybody she touched was rendered unclean. So that if they, had to, if they wanted to have their purity restored, their ritual purity restored, they had to take a mikvah, go into a mikvah and take a bath, and then the sun had to set. And then the following day, finally, once again, they would be pure. What, a, what an inconvenient person to have around. She must have been ostracized by all around her. The great man Jesus is coming through. He's very great. He's very busy. But she thinks, I know I'm going to render him unclean if I touch his clothes, but he can heal me. And he won't know this. So I'll just sneak up and touch the fringe of his cloak. And she does. And she's healed. What an amazing thing. But look at the woman's response. We find it in verse 33 when Jesus finds out that somebody has touched him and keeps looking around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and didn't thank him or praise him, but trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Why were the disciples afraid of Jesus, more afraid of Jesus than they had been of the storm? Why were the people of Gadara so afraid of Jesus, more afraid than they had been of the demon-possessed man in their midst? They were so afraid of Jesus that we read in verse 17, they begin to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Why was this woman who had been afflicted for 12 years and now is wonderfully, splendidly, miraculously healed, why is she afraid of Jesus after being healed? Well, I think if we put ourselves in their shoes, we'll know why they were afraid of Jesus. Because they were none too sure that Jesus, having helped them, might now become angry with them and what great power he could unleash upon them if he were inclined to do so. Think about yourself on an early morning, Saturday morning, summer fishing trip with a fishing buddy on 
Logan Martin Lake. You've gotten up early, 3.30, 4 in the morning. You've headed out. This is a guy you've known for a little while. You don't know him that well. You get in the boat. The bass are hitting. They're, they're jumping. You're pulling them in. But your friend, he's gotten up early. He's had his picnic breakfast, and he's sleepy, so he falls asleep in the boat. And suddenly, one of those intense summer storms starts to build up, about 8 in the morning. And a huge thunderhead gathers overhead, and lightning begins to strike, and rain begins to pour. And you've heard stories of people that have died on lakes in lightning storms like this. And so you say to your friend, hey, bud, what's with you? Get up, we're about to die. Imagine your friend standing up and saying to the lightning, stop flashing. To the rain, go away. To the waves, be still. The sky turns blue, the sun comes out, and the birds begin to sing. If we're honest with ourselves, we know what we would feel in a moment like that. We too would feel fear. Who is this guy? And did I maybe speak a little harshly when I told him to get up and get bailing? That's what the disciples thought. That's what the, certainly what the Gadarenes thought. You say they, see, they were used to dealing with pagan gods who you made a misstep and they zapped you. They sickened your child or they caused your, caused your crops to fail. And you went around in fear of the stars, which were the embodied gods up there in the heavens and making some misstep. And if you step the wrong way, hey, they might cause all of your pigs to go over the cliff and into the ocean. That's exactly what Jesus had done. We got a wild man in our midst, they thought. We thought this demon-possessed guy was bad. Now we've got someone who, control, who can control the demons within him, and he's already destroyed our pigs. What in the world is he going to do to us? He's powerful, but he's not for us. So they asked him to leave their region. The woman with the issue of blood does exactly the opposite thing. Of course, she's afraid of Jesus. She's touched this important man's garment. and She's rendered him unclean, moreover, of all things. He's on his way to the house of the leader of the synagogue to heal his deathly ill daughter of this dread disease. And she has now detained this important rabbi and rendered him unclean. She thought she was a pariah before. What in the world is going to happen to her now? This great and powerful rabbi, surely he will punish her. But her response is so much better than the response of the Gadarenes. I think she knew her Bible. She feared what might happen to her. She was troubled by Jesus because she did not know him well. But she brought her fears to Jesus. Knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Which I imagine included, Jesus, I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of what you might do to me. You're powerful. And yes, you are able to help me. You've shown that. You already have. 
But are you willing to continue to help me in my moment of need? And Jesus said to her the most beautiful words in all of Mark's gospel, Daughter, your faith has saved you. My NIV says healed you. The Greek says sesokin, saved you. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. No, although you're sinful and you deserve the wrath of God, you did render me impure. Not ritually impure, but your sinfulness has no right to be in my presence. I am holy, holy, holy. You don't have any right to kneel before me and ask me to do anything for you. But did you know the good news of Jesus is? He says to us, in spite of that bitter truth that we're sinful and we only deserve his wrath, he says to us, son, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God is not just able to help us in our great moment of need. He is willing to help us as well. You know, we need to remember this even as Christians. We need to remember this. You know, we, we cannot come to Christ in salvation bringing our own good works and bringing our own mechanics like the pagans did in antiquity for how we should propitiate the gods. We're, we're utterly sinful. That's going to fail. When we come to Jesus in, in conversion, we simply come to him in faith that even though we don't deserve it, he is for us and that our faith in him saves us. And because of that, we can go in peace. It was not, by the way, without cost. He died on the cross to make that possible. It's important to come to God in salvation, but did you know that it's also important to live by that faith as well? We are not only justified by faith. Paul tells us we live by faith. And so the temptation for us every day is to become a pagan again in our relationship with God. God, I know I got a bad grade on this test because I didn't have my quiet time this morning. That's a pagan idea. That's the idea of the Gadarenes. God is not for you. He's against you. And because you didn't have your quiet time, he's going to zap you. God, I, I know that the reason my business failed is because I didn't tithe last month. It's a pagan idea. God is for you. He's not against you. How does it work then? I mean, shouldn't we tithe? Shouldn't we, uh, shouldn't we do the right thing? Yes, of course we should. But on the other side of faith, in gratitude for what God has done for us. Well, now we finally come to this last and fourth miracle. Here we have a different kettle of fish entirely because this is the fourth, final, and greatest fear, the fear of death. Surely, this is beyond Jesus' ability. We look at verse 35 and we find this dread news coming to Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Jesus has been detained by this inconvenient woman and while he was still speaking, 
some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and they told him, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? He can still the storms. He can cast out the demons. He can make sick people well. But death is beyond him. This is too great. This is too serious. It's too grave. Why bother the teacher anymore? Yes, he's willing. We read in chapter 5, verse 24, so Jesus went with him. Jesus went with Jairus. He was willing to heal Jairus' daughter, but he is not able. Death is beyond his ability to deal with it. Jesus knows that Jairus is afraid of this. And so he says in verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid, afraid even of death. Just believe. And so Jesus goes to the house of Jairus and he says to this little 12 year old girl, Talitha Kum, my little girl, I say to you, arise. And the little girl gets up and he overcomes, Jesus overcomes death. You know, this is really the perhaps the greatest temptation for us as Christians. We know that God is loving and that he's good and that he's willing. We know that he is gracious. We've come to him in salvation. We've trusted in the death of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross to cover our sins. We know that God's wrath has been poured out in his Son and not on us. We know that God loves us, that he is a merciful, great, and good God. But down deep so often the challenge for us over and over again is to believe that God is able to help us in what he calls us to do. Lord, I know that you are calling me to go to that difficult place to serve. But, Lord, that's a dangerous place, and I don't have the kind of money that that sort of job would, uh, would, would require. I don't have the money. That job's not going to pay the resources to feed my family. God, I know that you love me, but if I trust you in this and do what you want me to do and obey you, I really don't think that you can take care of me in that situation. God, I know you have called me to be here at Beeson Divinity School, but right now, here at the end of the semester, God, I've got to somehow make it through this semester on my own. I can't be obedient to you in all the areas that you have called me to be obedient, Lord, because if I am, then I'm going to flunk out. So, Lord, I'm going to take care of this one. I'm going to scheme and figure out ways. Yes, they involve disobedience, but, but you can't help me here, God. This is, this is beyond you. God, I know you are calling me not to continue to nag my child about his or her calling to the mission field or to that place of service that the world does not value. Lord, this is my firstborn son. 
I thought he would be a doctor or a lawyer. He wants to go to, to a place somebody's never heard of and help poor people, and how is he going to take care of his family, and when am I ever going to see my grandchildren, Lord? No, you can't take care of this one. I know you love me. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know you can do a lot of things, but if I obey you in this area, Lord, you cannot take care of me here. Lord, I know that you're calling me to be faithful in the stewardship of my money. Faithful so that I can give to the poor. So that I can give of my money to help in the worldwide mission of the church. But God, if I actually tithe, or if I actually give that 15% you're calling me to give, or that whatever it might be you're calling me to give, God, you cannot take care of me. I've got to take care of this one, God. You're good in other areas, but you're not a very good financial manager. You can't take care of me here. That was exactly the temptation of Jairus. And that's exactly why Jesus said to him and why Jesus says to us, do not be afraid, only believe. Now, you may be thinking, and it would be quite understandable, you know, that's all well and good. This little girl got raised from the dead. But what about my child who goes over to southern India and dies and doesn't get raised from the dead? real possibility. Did you know the Bible teaches us that there is a fate worse than death? John chapter 5 verse 24 tells us that there is a fate worse than death and that is going into eternity not believing in Jesus. And chapter 5, verse 24 of John's Gospel tells us that by believing in Jesus, we can take care of that problem. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He's already taken care. She has already taken care of the most important thing in life, his or her relationship to their Creator. When we have that relationship right, a lot of other things in life can go seriously wrong. And the Bible tells us, did you know what? They matter, yes, but they don't matter ultimately. Now you say, that's too easy. That's too spiritual. I'm talking about people dying here. Look at verse 25. Did you know that the Bible teaches that everyone who dies in Jesus will be raised physically? From the dead? Verse 25, I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It is not only the little girl who heard the words, Talitha kum. You will hear those words too one day if you trust in Jesus. You will hear, my son, my daughter, get up and you will get up from the grave and live forever. It is a hope in which we can trust as Christians. The Bible teaches us that because God loves us and has shown his love for us on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we need to learn not to think like pagans about God, that God is both willing and able to help us in our deepest point of need. It's a wonderful little story by G.K. Chesterton called A Piece of Chalk. It's just a small essay. Chesterton 
was himself an artist. He liked to draw. And in this little story, it's fictional, but you get the feeling that maybe Chesterton, there are elements of truth in it from Chesterton's own experience. Chesterton talks about an amateur artist who goes one bright, sunny morning with his easel and his black construction paper and his artist's supply bag to one of the most beautiful places in England, Beachy Head, just south of Brighton, where the, there are these gorgeous white cliffs that are hundreds and hundreds of feet high. Maybe you've been there. It's a wonderful place to see. So this artist goes to Beachy Head, and he's going to do a chalk drawing of these wonderful white cliffs. He sets up his easel. He puts his black construction paper on it. He starts digging around in his artist's supply bag, and he discovers to his absolute distress and dismay he's forgotten to bring his chalk. His wonderful morning of drawing and this beautiful drawing that's going to materialize that just shows these lovely white cliffs of Beachy Head, it's all ruined. It's a Saturday. The art supply stores in the village nearby are not going to be open. And then with a laugh, he realizes what those white cliffs are made out of. He is looking at the world's largest chalk deposit. And he, he looks down at the ground beneath his feet. He stoops down and picks up a white rock and has a lovely morning drawing a beautiful picture of the white cliffs near Beachy Head. And the love of God is like that, but we so often don't realize it. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It's more massive than the white cliffs in southern England. It is great. It is huge. Paul tells us in Ephesians that if we want a measure of it in human terms, we can only look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where God died for us, God the Son. That that is a measure in human terms of, the, uh, of his love, but, but even that does not tell the whole story. The length and breadth and height and depth of God's love is greater than we could ever understand. Mark chapters 4 and 5 tell us that as we live our lives as Christians, we need to live them every day, not in fear, but in faith. We need to walk in trust and in obedience that when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, God will take care of us. Amen. May God help us to be faithful. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.